podcast journey years ago, my goal was to talk to people just like April DeValconeer to figure out answers on what to do about my mother's scam before she passed away in 2020. DeValconeer is what's called a forensic investigator and so much more, kind of like a numbers wonder woman in front of a keyboard who helps to uncover scams. She also does everything from testifying court cases as a financial expert to teaching courses to law enforcement on elderly scams. Later in this episode, We'll hear what she thinks could be one of the answers to the nightmare of romance scams. Then we'll talk about what's happening in her field with the growing number of victims. First, I want to let her describe to you what she does for a living. It's kind of complicated. Okay, so you have a lot of letters by your name. Describe to people (laughs) what it is you do. It's multifaceted. Yes, it is. So first of all, I'll explain what the acronyms are, and then I'll tell you essentially how I work those all in together. Okay. So the first set of acronyms after my name essentially says that I am a State Bar of Wisconsin Certified Paralegal. That's the first acronym after my name. The second one is CFCI. It's Certified Financial Crimes Investigator. Essentially means that I have been through the training and necessary means to be able to investigate financial crimes. The last one currently is CCI, which is Certified Cryptocurrency Investigator. And so that is the one that's relatively new to me. That one's new here in 2023. And it essentially means that I've, again, gone through the training so that I can trace cryptocurrency to some extent and trying to at least identify what organizations or agencies we can try to get legal process through to really determine maybe who our suspects are in these types of investigations. I can do everything from the beginning from someone just realizes they've been a victim all the way through expert testimony at the time of prosecution, whether that's for motions or trial or what have you. And how did you get interested in this or how did you land in this field? A wide variety of background. I fell into this field because I have a passion for numbers. So I do forensic accounting. That's really where all of this leads from because even cryptocurrency is just another type of currency, but it's still a financial crime. And so I have a great mind for data analysis of financial crimes investigations. I'm former law enforcement, and I've worked in civil courts and criminal courts. I've worked in the banking system. I've worked in retail accounting. So it just there's a number of different aspects that I can pull from in my career history that essentially has put me in such a place that I can do this. And I do it very, very well because there's very few people that do what I do in regards to the financial exploitation of elders. Now you see why I let her explain her background. If you didn't understand that at all, basically, all you need to know is she knows her shit. Although I can do all financial crimes, my passion is really for elder financial exploitation because I love to give a voice to those individuals who need justice and either can no longer do it themselves or are too afraid to do it themselves. Maybe they no longer have the mental capacity. Maybe they've passed on and now we're trying to help their estate. Those types of aspects, but really providing justice to those victims who can no longer do it for themselves. There aren't many people who do what you do, and the demand is only growing. Yes. We need more. We absolutely need more. I actually reach out to the community. I partner up with another gentleman. We actually go together to colleges 
And we actually talked to their accounting and their finance students trying to get them to go into forensic accounting. And the problem is, is that universities typically are not teaching forensic accounting. They're teaching basic accounting, they're teaching up through CPA, and they're teaching audit accounting, but they're not actually teaching forensic accounting. She says there are even scholarships available for forensic accounting. I totally think forensic accounting sounds way sexier and more exciting than a typical accountant, but that's just me and I can't add or subtract, so. We have a number of different organizations that are willing to provide internships for students. It sounds exciting. <laughs> it, it very much is. And the thing is, is people don't realize what you can do with a forensic accounting experience or background. A trial I just finished, which was a financially motivated homicide. So you see all the gruesomeness of what it can be, and you are able to articulate for the court and for the jury to explain to them essentially how the financial aspect was the motive for the murder. And when you think about forensic accounting, people don't always think about that aspect. And that's what I love. I enjoy that piece of it. I love being able to explain what I found in the documents in a visual manner so that everybody can understand it. Okay, enough with our PSA on going into forensic accounting. I just find it fascinating, even though I can't do a basic math problem. I love how you can hear the passion in her voice when she describes what she does for a living. I do all kinds of scams, but mainly older people, and most of the time, the ones that pull at their heartstrings, like romance scams. What are some things that you've seen in that realm? In that regard, a majority of what we're seeing, typically it's pig butchering, which I hate that term. It's actually financial investment manipulation is a different term that I utilize. But what it is, is that these individuals are trying to manipulate the victims, typically in the U.S., out of their financial wealth. And originally, the way that that came about is they thought that it was just these criminals reaching out to these people trying to get their money. Well, that's no longer the case. What's actually occurring is human trafficking victims are being forced into reaching out to these older adults and conning them out of their money, manipulating them out of their money so the human trafficking victims don't get exploited or beaten or killed because they didn't get enough money out of these victims. She says a lot of the cryptocurrency scams are actually funneling money into terrorism. We've touched on that in some of the previous episodes. And some of the people you're talking to are actually victims themselves. They're doing it really to save themselves, to save their own lives in a lot of cases. Um, and to save themselves from beatings and, and other things, which is just horrific. Um, but that's what's occurring. And it's just insane how much it's happening and how much loss is occurring because of it. Victims here are actually speaking to a human trafficking victim when they are talking to someone. A lot of times, yes. How far have you been able to take these cases? Have you been able to put anyone in jail um, with the pig butchering? Because it's, kind of, it's not been around that long that I know of. It depends on jurisdiction, right? And typically, the people that we're getting currently are not the criminals that are outside the country. It's actually more of the criminals that are here domestically, because although we do say that a lot of the pig butchering criminals are outside the country, there are some that are here, right? When I say here, I mean the U.S., someplace that we can extradite from. But the romance scam ones are currently less likely to be prosecuted only because of the knowledge that's necessary for both the law enforcement and the prosecutors to understand what it is and how it works. 
what that means is there's some jurisdictions that like essentially it's charged as a money laundering. Well, if a state that is working on one of these does not have a state money laundering legislation, they have to rely on the Fed. Well, the Feds typically have a threshold of like a quarter of a million dollars. If their case is for $100,000, nobody's going to look at that case in that jurisdiction because it doesn't reach the threshold for the Feds and the state doesn't have their own money laundering legislation. The romance scams are hard because number one, jurisdiction, and number two, a lot of people don't understand them. So you're meaning like DAs and other prosecutors and law enforcement are just now starting to dig their heels into this, that this is a crime. Because a lot of the victims I speak to, they go to police and police are like, that's not a crime. You gave your money away. Well, that's an educational piece as to the fact that it's it's not giving it away willingly under the correct circumstances. It's more of a theft by fraud, right? So they're being told one thing as to the reason why it's being given away, but their money is actually being used for something else. However, that being said, it depends on the circumstances because then if that's the case, and then we have to prove that that money didn't go back to mom. So there's a number of different pieces that come in there and education for law enforcement to understand it is definitely occurring. It has been occurring for the last few years in regards to cryptocurrency and even just scams in general or schemes in general um, related to older adults. But the difficult piece is there's a lot of states that don't have undue influence laws. Uh, meaning that if someone is threatened or is fearful enough, then there's not really a way to charge that person criminally. So there are a lot of agencies that don't know or are unaware of different ways that they can charge it. And so they do say it's a civil matter, which I do not agree with, because although it can be a civil matter, it can also be a criminal matter. And so that's a lot of what I educate on, especially with regards to like power of attorney theft. Yeah, the only um, romance scam victims that I've interviewed that have been able to get money back it was in a civil case and they don't ever get it all back. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been able to get anyone's money Correct. back? So in cryptocurrency, no, we have not. In regards to fiat currency or, you know, just normal green cash, we have had some success in not necessarily getting it back from the suspect, but sometimes stopping it along the way. So if, if it was a wire, we've been able to pull some of those funds back before the defendant got their hands on it. So that's typically the way that we see it and the way we can stop it if we're notified soon enough right? We can try to claw back some of that money in that regard. And how do people find people like you in their state? Typically, they're looking for a forensic accountant. You would just Google forensic accounting, and then you'd have to find something that's specific to older adults or elder law or elder justice, that type of a thing. Typically, it's word of mouth, really. I mean, they start, they have to talk about what's happening, and then they hopefully will come across the right, either law enforcement or adult protective services agency or somebody that knows of people like myself around the state, because we are so few and far between those agencies in the state know that we're here. And then they know to have our name and contact information available for anybody that's asking, because they're not going to necessarily find it, you know, just trying to search it for themselves. When someone finds someone like you close to them or in their Mm -hmm. state, what can you do to help the families? Well, it depends on the circumstances. So typically, my perspective is once the victim understands that they are a victim and is willing to admit they're a victim, and is willing to share their financial documentation, right? Because that's where really where I can step in and start looking at the documents and the data analysis of what do we have in the financials? What do we need in order to try to prove a particular crime? Um, what evidence do we have access to and what do we need law enforcement or another agency to try to acquire for us? At that point, I need the victim to be able to identify that the fact they're a victim or, you know, if they have a fiduciary, if they have a power of attorney or a guardian or somebody else that's willing to share those financials with me, that's when I can kind of start 
helping out. You know, I've actually had a family that has reached out to me and said, hey, look, we know that this family member is being manipulated, that this family member has given away hundreds of thousands of dollars, but she does not have a fiduciary other than herself. She has all of her faculties, so she has all of the abilities of her own mind, and she doesn't want to admit she's a victim. So in that case, I reach out to the family and I try to offer them support in different aspects, educational learning and different things that they can do until this person is ready to admit that they're a victim because we can't get our hands on her financials, right? So helping them essentially understand how to talk to this person without talking down to them, how to talk to them and help them understand why that person might be continuing to engage in this quote-unquote relationship and or continuing to release the funds. It's very much an educational aspect for the family because they don't understand, right? And they're not heartstruck as the victim is in all of the different lies and stories that the victim is probably not sharing with the family, right? And so it's just trying to help them understand, hey, look, you, you can't come across to them aggressively. You have to help them understand how to stay safe online and how to protect the funds that they have left and what they can do with those funds versus what it could potentially be. Because anybody can win the jackpot, you know, a Powerball jackpot, but you have to buy a ticket to win. So it's a matter of what are your actual odds of this actually coming to fruition and helping the family understand how to communicate that to the victim if they're not willing or able yet to admit that they're a victim. I just assumed that you had to be in the same state to help a victim because of all the different laws. But she had a point. Her job is a little different. You know, I can do things anywhere in the country. Truthfully, as forensic accountants, we have to because there's so few of us that we have to be multi-jurisdictional. And we can be, um, as long as we have the right credentials and the right certifications and understand who we need to talk to in those areas to make sure that we have proper jurisdiction when we're assisting in these investigations. Now, I listened to uh, one of your previous podcast interviews, and people are always coming to me and asking, once their loved one is embroiled in the scam, how they can stop it, which is really, really difficult. You say the key is to get to it way before that point. Yeah. The statistics show that older adults, who have given money away, right? If they're involved in a scam or a scheme of some sort, they are 94% likely to talk about it if they have not lost any money. So if they didn't lose any money or very, very little money, they're willing to talk about what's occurring, what's happening, and, and how they're being manipulated by this potential defendant. However, the moment that they lose money, their lives button up. And now it's a matter of one in 44 of these victims will actually talk about the financial crime that has occurred. And so trying to help them understand what it is before it happens is the best way to get through this. Because if they hear it, whether that's, you know, from somebody at the senior center with them or from somebody from church or what have you, hey, that this, this isn't manipulating criminals that are doing this out there and how to prevent it or how to stop it, you know, to make sure that they're hanging up the phone or making sure that if they have a laptop, you know, making sure their camera's not turned on or covered up or whatever. It's a lot easier to help educate them in the safety measures ahead of time than helping them recover from the crisis and the trauma after the fact. You also say something that was interesting, that a lot of older adults are isolated. So one key is keeping in regular contact. And I mean, like daily is what you say. Oh, absolutely. When my aunt was still alive, I called her every day. I called her at the same time every day, um, sometimes multiple times a day, depending on what I knew her her activity schedule was going to be, just to kind of check up in her. Take five minutes and you're driving to work or 
on your coffee break or whatever the case may be, call and ask them how their day is going. Initially, I will tell people it's going to be longer than five minutes because these people are so excited that you're calling them and, and engaging with them. They're going to talk to you forever. But if you do it constantly, right, they're going to be comfortable with five or 10 minutes of your time every day because they know that you're going to call them back again tomorrow and they're going to get to talk to you again tomorrow about what's coming up in three or four days versus trying to cram whatever's going to happen this entire week into one phone call on Sunday. Another thing you say is people don't, they don't want to be nosy. They want to give their loved ones privacy, but you say snoop, like go over there and look at the mail. Vigil needs their own privacy and I want to respect that as much as possible. However, when you are coming into a situation where you think somebody is being exploited, you need to ask the hard questions. You need to become involved. You need to be very observant as to what type of bank statements are coming in the mail. Who are they coming from? What financial institution is it? You know, because if this person's not willing to open up, maybe you do have to go talk to the financial institution and say, hey, look, I understand I'm not on this account, but I think my aunt or my mom or whomever might be in the middle of, of being victimized. And I can't help them right now because they don't want to talk to me about it. Is there anything that you can do and see if the financial institution can or is willing to help? So it, it kind of depends on the circumstances. But the other piece of that is is education as to being prepared, right? So having a power of attorney, having a will or, you know, health care power of attorney, financial power of attorney. I understand that those are hard conversations. They can be very difficult. I agree that everybody needs their own independence to a point, right? They need to be able to and willing to vocalize their opinion ahead of time before it happens. You don't have to prove a crime in order to report it to adult services or to law enforcement. That's up to them to determine whether or not a crime has been committed, right? You're just saying, hey, look, something's not right. I, I can't put my finger on it, but we need to do something. And doing something is better than nothing. Um, I think the other preventative measure, not necessarily red flag, but preventative measure is, you know, freeze your credit. Be proactive in, in things and ways that you can protect yourself. Because if you know that your credit is frozen and all of a sudden you're getting a new credit card in the mail, call the credit card company and say, hey, look, I didn't order this. I asked her the million-dollar question. What can family members do to take control of the bank account, even if their loved one doesn't approve? There are options of guardianship. There's also different types of guardianship. So there's guardian of the person, there's guardian of the estate, and then some states have what's called a spendthrift guardianship. And so what it essentially means is in most guardianships, you have to prove that the person is incompetent or lacks capacity to make their own decisions. And in most cases, that's not the position of the victim, right? They can make all, those, all their decisions that they want in their life, but they're just spending their money because of this fraud inappropriately, right? Or, or what somebody else may believe to be inappropriately. Why does somebody maybe think it's inappropriate? Because they're concerned that that victim may not have enough money now to live on because they're giving too much of it away. My mom um, said it's her money. She can spend it as she wishes. Right. Well, what about when it's out? <laughs> well, that's just it. And, and that's really where the spendthrift guardianships come into play. Those guardianships are specific to typically to addiction, like if somebody has a gambling addiction or a drinking addiction or what have you, but some states have actually tailored that spendthrift guardianship addiction to giving money away for these types of scams. My mom was addicted. She became addicted to the companionship and just the idea of being in love. Exactly. So if that can be articulated in a spendthrift guardianship, it essentially says this victim can keep all of her rights. However, somebody else is going to manage her money because we are concerned that she is not going to have enough money to live on. Now states are looking into passing a law that allows a bank to pause a transaction with several safeguards in place. 
but it depends on the state. Not all states have that. So if their client comes to them and says, hey, I need to take out, you know, 15 or $30,000 because I'm going to wire this to wherever, they can actually say, whoa, 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 whoa. Who is this person? What are you going to use this for? Is this for a scholarship? Is this for a grandchild? Is this whatever the case may be? They can say, hey, look, let's look into this a little bit further before we actually make this transaction happen. Because that's who really sees these financial losses before anybody else, right? We can give the financial institutions that same ability to pause a transaction and say, okay, we're still going to pay mom's mortgage. We're still going to pay her electric bill and all of her, her normal daily transactions that we're used to her seeing. But she comes in and now wants to wire or change $40,000 into crypto or, or whatever the case may be, giving them the ability to pause that transaction and say, hey, look, we need more information. We need to help her determine whether or not this is valid or this is a scam before that transaction goes through, I think is, is huge, right? So we're actually contemplating that currently in the state of Wisconsin. We just passed the legislature. We're now waiting for the Senate. I think that's one of the biggest things is talking to your legislature about you know, how can we give the financial institutions who's seeing this firsthand that ability to help pause those transactions temporarily? Because in some states, too, you can now have what's called a trusted individual where they don't actually have access to your account. They're not an agent on your account. They're not your power of attorney. But it's somebody that the financial institution can actually reach out to and say, hey, look, this transaction is way out of the ordinary for mom and you know, she doesn't have a whole lot of details and we've tried to, you know, talk to her. We think this might be a scam. Would you be willing to come down here and talk to us with her? Or do you have any other insight as to, you know, is this as valid or not? And that type of a thing. That is not yet mandatory, but there are a number of states that are taking that under consideration as well as giving the financial institution an opportunity to call a trusted individual, somebody that their client has given them the name and contact information for, in order to provide kind of like a safety net, the way that a lot of them are drafted is in regards to specific age requirements, right? So it's not everybody, it's mm -hmm. certain targeted individual groups. So it's like 60 and older, 65 and older, just because they typically lose more money than the rest of the normal population or general population, primarily because they have more money to lose. It's a matter of understanding that it's not like every transaction is going to be paused or anything like that. It's a matter of very unique, unusual circumstances that's really going to give that financial institution cause to pause. And it's not like the teller, the 18-year-old sailing at the teller line is going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to pause that transaction. They're going to say, hey, something's not right. You know, they're going to go talk to their boss. Their boss is going to get involved. And then typically the boss brings in somebody from their security team. And that's really the third set of eyes at the financial institution would be the one that would typically be the one that says, you know what, we're going to pause this transaction and we're going to take 24 hours or whatever the case may be to try to figure out, is this a real account that it's going to? Is it, is it a real person? We've had some good feedback. Truthfully, the last time we testified for this particular um, legislation, because we've actually been trying to get it passed for three years, they've amended it several times. They've amended the age from 60 to 65. They've amended like originally we asked for up to seven days, but within those seven days, if the financial institution is going to hold it for an extended period of time, like they have to call EPS or Adult Protective Services, they have to call law enforcement, they have to do certain things if they're going to hold it, you know, for that period of time. But actually, the last time I looked at it, I think it actually got amended to more than that, only because it was trying to mirror the security legislation, which was more than seven days. So it's been amended a couple of different times, but 
We're just uh, trying to finalize it, so hopefully it'll pass this one. AARP, they were a great supporter of this particular piece of legislation. So since the interview, I've thought a lot about her proposal about financial institutions. Would I have wanted that for my mother? The answer is absolutely. However, not everyone will feel that way. Even I have some reservations about giving up total control on my bank account when I get older. So I put the question out there on the Scammer Stories Facebook page. The comments were overwhelmingly in favor, but there were a few against. Here's one of the comments. Hell no. Not everyone who's old is stupid. It's their money to do what they please. So there's that. I also spoke to other banking experts in my circle who say this will never work. Nevertheless, it's a conversation worth having. Who's responsible? Who can stop it? Does anyone in authority like lawmakers even care until it happens to them? I definitely like one thing April said for sure. Let's contact your lawmakers, state and federal. I also want to thank everyone who's listened to this podcast and made it the top of 2023. One of the top, anyway. It means a lot to me. When I first started this podcast, I didn't know if people would be interested in hearing one scam story after another. And it turns out you are. And you even want more. I'm trying. Maybe that'll be my goal this year. Until next time, if you would like to donate to help this podcast keep going, I've left a donation button in the show notes. Until next time, Scammer Warriors.